Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. Back on its usual schedule after oh, travel, backlog of KubeCon interviews, which I hope you enjoyed, and then just getting back into the swing of things. Back now, not going anywhere for a little while. The podcast was building up nicely and then I let it sort of crash a little whilst I was away, but now getting back to normal again. So this week I have a, a few links to catch up with, uh, covering some interesting topics from uh, Dungeons & Dragons, of course, uh, the uh, vestiges of British colonial empire, another subject I love to discuss. Um, we have discussions on Apple, old programming languages, and much more, and an interview with Ian Fogg from OpenSignal, who are a mobile analytics company uh, who actually managed to get a very large data set on mobile signal uh, around the world. And we had an interesting conversation about the current state of 4G in many cities and countries and what that is going to mean for 5G. But let's get started with the link. First, an article on The Guardian from Afua Hirsch. Uh, this is called Teach British Tourists the Truth About Empire. They Can Take It. Uh, this is this is an interesting one. Um they're all interesting, otherwise I wouldn't include them. But this is a topic that has interested me for some time, how certain cultures are good at acknowledging their past and acknowledging some of the, let's call them crimes, of the past, whereas others are not, and the British are one of those. Um, a very large empire that abused many people in many parts of the world. I've been reading a lot of books around this recently. But the average um, Britain on the street and especially tourists in some of those places, is often very unaware of that and very unaware of quite how bad some of it was, whether it's just the vestiges of time or the world has changed or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, the average bit is not very good at acknowledging it. Even in the home country, cities like Bristol, for example, and Edinburgh, built on slave money and exploitation money, and um, we, we often forget that this was the case. So this article uh, prompts a discussion that maybe hotels and museums in some places like the Caribbean and parts of Africa and India, for example, should be a little better at explaining what happened in places. It's not to guilt trip the, the current tourist, because it was a long time ago, but at least to make them more aware of it and to make them more aware of why some places are in the current situation they are, uh, often because of the withdrawal of the colonial masters, etc. So... Yeah, it's weird. I, I remember some years ago going to a museum here in Berlin. Uh, Berlin is a city that does cope with its past fairly well, um, called the Topography of Terror, a lovely name. And uh, it's basically a museum about the crimes of Nazi Germany. It's a very cheerful place. Um, and I heard a child, an English child, in the bathroom saying exactly the same thing to his father, uh, Dad, why do we not have museums like this in Britain? <laughs> I thought that was a very smart kid. Um, and yes, maybe the younger generation will start to question this a lot more. Um, generally, you find that countries that have had old empires uh, find it very hard to move on from this period when they were supposedly great, in quote marks. And we actually see the UK going through this kind of moment in its history right now. Uh, so maybe if they'd come to terms better with empire, we were, the country would not be in the thralls of the argument it is in now. Your thoughts on a postcard, please. Next, with no real logical connection here, is an article um, from CityLab by Jessica Lee Hester. 
called How to Disappear. Uh, this is specifically around smart cities uh, and how to disappear in a smart city. I suppose there are certain positives to smart cities, the ability to have constant monitoring, to know where uh, parking space is available, when cleaning is needed, um, to avert disasters, etc., etc. But to many people, they are just additions to the surveillance state. Um, I think probably both are right and both are wrong in equal measure. But this is an interesting article uh, from people who do want to disappear. Um, we won't question why. That's not really the place of the article. And this covers things like clothing and masks uh, to disguise your face, obscuring license plates and things like that. Um, I guess the face and uh, number plates is one of those ones where it really is quite tieable to a uh, person. There's lots of other cases where I wonder if it actually is, but it's just sensors. I mean, cameras are a different state of affairs. And then this uh, article, not really related to smart cities, but I found it quite fascinating, and I see a few people sharing it, actually, um, is, is a website called Internet Noise that randomly opens uh, several tabs uh, and searches for things to just sort of add noise to algorithms. Um, and I actually really love this as an idea. I have also noticed since I started using DuckDuckGo instead of Google, my uh, Android, uh, Google Home, no, uh, what the Google Assistant when you swipe left and you get the news feed page has become not as good as it used to be because I'm not supplying as much data to the algorithm anymore, which I find quite fascinating. And I do remember seeing a talk at CCC a couple of years ago around this too, this sort of intentionally adding noise into algorithms to disrupt them, which reminds me, I do have a T-shirt available called... Uh, disrupt the algorithm. I think I haven't actually looked at it for a while. I can't remember the exact what the exact slogan is, but if you like this idea, you can get a T-shirt. And that was recommended to you by a human, not an algorithm. So enjoy. And the article concludes with possibly the most fascinating sentence for me, and that's this. I'm going to quote here. This is a quote from one of the interviewees. No one wants to live in a dumb city. In quote marks. But opting out shouldn't need to be the default. And this is interesting because I wonder how you could opt out of a smart city, especially with sensors and things like that. And maybe that's not what they're referring to. Maybe they're referring to the cameras. But I wonder how you could opt out of a kind of always-on system, a system that is designed to enhance a city, a collection of individuals, um, which does, by virtue of that, need to collect data on individuals, how would it be technically and legally and regulatory possible to opt out of such a sort of catch-all system, especially maybe if you've opted out of a smart city in another city and you come to another city, etc., etc.? So it's an interesting statement in that it's a very easy statement to make, but I actually wonder how you'd implement it. And again, I'm not dismissing the statement. I'm just pondering on that. And if you have any thoughts, I would love to hear from you. Next, and again, I am really struggling to find any connections between any of these, <laughs> but we're not tech-heavy this week, at least, which will make some of you happy. This was an article from The New Yorker by Salman Rushdie, actually. Uh, what Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse 5 tells us now. I do love Kurt Vonnegut's work. Actually, I'm of the opinion that Slaughterhouse 5 is not his best um, my favourite is Breakfast of Champions, which this article does actually mention in passing. But it's still a good book. Um, it's very well known. Uh, and uh, actually, the Salman Rushdie quotes a couple of uh, 
quips here, or I'm not sure what the right, right word is, but phrases that Kurt Vonnegut sort of formalises in um, sort of House Five, although he does use them in his other books um, that have passed into somewhat into modern vocabulary. I'm not 100% sure if, that's, if it's as common as the author thinks it is, but um, so it goes, for example, and quite what Kurt Vonnegut means when he uses this is somewhat open to interpretation. Salman Rushdie thinks that Kurt Vonnegut is using it to refer to death. I'm not 100% sure. Um, from memory, and, and I am also aggregating this across numerous Kurt Vonnegut books, I think he uses it more in a kind of, uh, almost like a giving up and accepting kind of way. So I suppose that could be about death, but also about other things. My, my, my interpretation of it is more broad. Anyway, uh, it's still an interesting book. Um, I have been to Dresden, actually, and seen some of the areas where... The, a lot of the book takes place. Um, I've also watched the somewhat average film adaptation. I think a modern filmmaker could do a very good job of Sword of House 5, actually. I don't know why um, no one has proposed that yet. I do believe Sword of House 5 is another one of these classic examples of a book that sometimes when you describe it as science fiction, which it sort of is, only because science fiction and fantasy are often good vehicles for experimentation, uh, it could put a lot of readers off. And yes, the character in certain parts of the book does end up on an alien planet, but really much like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is also referenced in the article because Douglas Adams was definitely inspired by Kurt Vonnegut. It's just a vehicle. Um, do not let the vehicle distract the message. Uh, and this is this is always something I've struggled, especially with fantasy, I've found myself. I, I sometimes find it hard to get through the sort of veils of... Uh, of, of fantasy to the message uh, and some writers are better at this and others and some writers just don't even have a message so, <laughs> so read the article and if you haven't read Slaughterhouse 5 read Slaughterhouse 5 it's actually not very long uh, it's a good introduction to Kurt Vonnegut's work and then you can dive into some of his other work uh, should you so wish okay now comes my mostly regular reference to Dungeons & Dragons or board games, role-playing or board games, an article from Medium from UX Collective by, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce this, so I'm going to be very careful, uh, Ploy Burapate, uh, called Dungeons & Dragons and Design Thinking. I did actually see a presentation here in Berlin a couple of years ago on a similar topic. I think it was more about project management. So a few people have had this same idea, but here is another one. Um... And I think this is using Dungeons & Dragons more as a vehicle to explain uh, good teamwork, um, relationships between different personalities and how to balance those and how a games master is kind of the arbitrator of all of these personalities and balancing them into a cohesive whole. I must admit, I think the author has played some very... Uh, maybe some very constructive D&D games. I've certainly had plenty of D&D games where personalities do conflict and do maybe disrupt the flow, um, sometimes intentional. This is, this is sometimes the point. If you're role-playing, you don't always play your, your best side, and that's kind of the point sometimes. Um, and I think, again, maybe referring back to the uh, Kurt Vonnegut article before, don't let the vehicle put you off. Sometimes something like D&D, &D, uh, it's become increasingly mainstream, but still... Uh, is perceived as a nerd's kind of pastime. Um, but actually, it's a relatively simple game to get started with. You don't have to 
obey all rules if you don't want to. But it could be a very good team-building exercise wrapped up in a sort of fun vehicle. Um, and I, I think more teams should try it, actually. You sort of one-shots to a bit of team bonding, uh, give people to play the people they are or they're not, of course. Um, it sort of lets off a bit of steam. It highlights a few dynamics, etc., etc. So if anything from this article, maybe you get that as a point of inspiration, which is actually a D&D reference if, uh, if any of you are paying attention. Next is another article from The Guardian by Ronald Purser, The Mindfulness Conspiracy. I have watched this mindfulness revolution with a slightly sceptical eye for some time, and um, I'm interested to see someone else sharing the same opinion. And I don't necessarily want to get into... Oh, don't always be negative sort of attitude. I think this is somewhat the point of the post in that um, mindfulness, calm thinking, uh, balance in your mind can't solve every problem. And this is sort of the point of the post. It's like you have a problem. Oh, just meditate. Just clear your head. Just be mindful and it solves everything. And that's not strictly true. It doesn't make the problem necessarily go away. Okay, granted, you may come back and be able to solve the problem better, but especially kind of large world scenarios where we're having a, a lot of uh, geopolitical issues right now, meditating is not going to solve that problem unless some of the people meditating are the people who maybe could. Um, and I guess the argument is that by spreading this sort of this uh, trend of resetting your brain and 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 becoming more self well, not self centered but centered means that maybe we're just avoiding the big issues too much. And I, I find this uh, this interesting. And then the, the author also kind of points this as a, a little bit of a representation of the modern world, like escaping from a problem instead of tackling it. Um, and many will accuse you of being negative if you try to mention this. And this isn't constructive either. I think there's a place for, for everybody. It's also interesting because there's a little bit of a cover of the history of mindfulness and how it is a little bit of a pyramid scheme. The original creator, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, did want to sort of scale how to distribute the message and so came up with this somewhat uh, common idea of training the trainer, as it were, to spread the message. I don't know if... Um, to be a mindfulness coach, you have to pay royalties or subscription fees or anything like that. I'm not 100% sure. But um, it's interesting that an entire business uh, has erupted around the concept. Um, and um, even more sceptical amongst us would say that that was kind of always the point anyway. And inside the article, the author uh, quotes from a Buddhist teacher called Miles Neal, who actually coined the term muk mindfulness. Uh, he goes on to describe it as a feeding frenzy of spiritual practices that provide immediate nutrition but no long-term sustenance. And I guess this sort of franchisation of mindfulness. Which I think is the main argument against it. Um, you could also say that people do like to always knock things down that are successful. Uh, maybe mindfulness is just the latest victim. But I do, yes, I do take a little bit of personal issue with this just uh, going inside yourself, focusing to solve all problems. Um, 
all problems. I'm not. I don't want. I do again want to caveat that it can solve some problems, but not all problems it can be avoided through being mindful. That said, um, I think I personally still want to be more focused at times, um, be more relaxed, uh, meditate more, practice mindfulness a little bit more, etc. But maintain a hold on reality that it will not solve all issues, and that practitioners of mindfulness should also be aware that this is the case um, and be more willing to discuss that with people who can be dismissive of mindfulness and not dismiss them. Okay, tech fans, we are now heading into the tech trilogy, final three articles. First is another post from Medium from Young Coder by Matthew McDonnell, um, The Rise and Fall of Visual Basic. I love reading about languages and technologies that have come and gone. Visual Basic is one of them. It's still around, but this article tracks its history, um, how it was created in the first place, kind of one of the first uh, programming languages that were enabled you to code somewhat visually. And I remember actually learning at university. I did a unit on Visual Basic. You could create interfaces. It was like a proto-flash in some way. Well, actually, they were both, both around about the same time. Um, but then it became... I guess as programming became more mainstream, it became a bit, uh, to use an Australian word, daggy, a bit long in the tooth, a bit old. Um, the paradigms that it helped people create were not really relevant anymore. Programmers didn't necessarily need tools like this anymore or better tools came out or other programming languages became more accessible. It was another one of these technologies, much like Flash and other tools like that, that uh, lowered the bar maybe too much and created a lot of very bad applications, some of which are still being maintained and are somewhat responsible for some very old versions of Internet Explorer and Windows still having to be supported. Um, and it, it is still around, and the article does sort of, in its latter half, cover the, the, the legacies that Microsoft are still sort of slowly easing out into C Sharp and .NET at the moment. But yes, I love reading these sorts of articles, and uh, this relates nicely to the forthcoming Enthusiastic Amateur podcast, which I keep saying is coming soon, and it really is coming soon, I promise this time, um, where we uh, cover computer history. So maybe it would be nice to have this uh, post to discuss in that, but oh well, the timing doesn't always work out that way. But if the history of programming languages are old enough, just old enough to remember using Visual Basic, have a read. And one more Medium post. This is from Owen Williams in 1-0. Uh, to revive the Mac, Apple wants to kill Electron. Electron you may not know, but you have used. Um, it's a framework that enables you to use JavaScript, a language that is mostly for programming web applications, and put a wrapper around it to make a native feeling application. If you've used Slack, if you've used uh, many, many applications, then you have used Electron. It's a double-edged sword, much like Visual Basic. <laughs> there was a link there. Um, in that it lowers the bar, because if you want to make a native application for Linux, Mac OS, Windows, then you often need to learn uh, new paradigms each time. Electron enables you to create one code base and roll it out to multiple platforms. This always has downsides, of course. Performance is one of the main ones. A lot of Electron applications are incredibly CPU and memory heavy but it has brought a lot of applications to minority platforms, Linux and Mac OS, especially, especially Linux, actually. 
so it sort of was very much a double-edged sword. Um, and with recent announcements from Apple, this project Catalyst being one of them, Apple has been mindful of trying to figure out how to get more people building Mac applications, but better, more native Mac applications. And recently at WWDC, the Apple Developer Conference, they announced Catalyst, which was called something else before, but is now called Catalyst. This plan that enables people to take iOS applications that do have a much larger user base than Mac these days and port them to the Mac with relative ease. This doesn't really solve the cross-platform problem for the desktop OSs, but I mean, we will see um, what effect it has for the Mac anyway. Maybe it will become cross-platform, highly unlikely, but you never know. Combining this with the cross-platform potential of Swift and the Swift UI framework that was also announced, this may make um, Apple tooling more of an option for creating uh, applications for different platforms, but again, remains to be seen. But lots of people have talked about wanting to kill Electron. Electron has got better, actually, <laughs> but still... Um, many people dislike it, including myself, a lot of the time. Um, but, yeah, I am looking forward to seeing the first wave of Catalyst applications to see what difference it does make to Mac users. And finally, you all know that I occasionally cover blockchain cryptocurrencies, so it would be amiss of me not to, at least in passing, mention Libra. Libra from Facebook, although if you look at the Libra project, Facebook's name is very strangely absent I think intentionally so. So far, criticism, feedback, opinions have been mixed, as you would expect. Um, Actually, a project that I work with, Carrie, we dug into the technical side and found that to be not too bad. The core blockchain, the smart contract language are all pretty well made, pretty well documented, pretty easy to get going. The team is very responsive. So that is all of positives. What Facebook is trying to accomplish by creating a global currency is what causes more concern and also the semi-private nature of Libra as well causes lots of concern. Um, There's many places you could go read much more detail on this, but I guess I would wrap it up with my main thought on this is there's now a lot of corporates getting involved with cryptocurrencies, pushing them into the mainstream which is kind of what we always wanted, wasn't it? But are they going to spoil what we wanted in the first place? Um, Who knows? Is this the mainstream adoption we wanted? Is it the mainstream adoption we're going to get anyway? How best can we work with that? Et cetera, et cetera. So it poses a lot of meta questions now about what we all do next um, and how we handle these new incursions into our very sort of crypto decentralized anarchic space and if you have any thoughts on that i'd love to hear them now next to my interview for the week this is with ian fogg of open signal where we discuss the current state of mobile networks and what is coming in the future a quick disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast there was someone else on the call who wasn't muted who was typing away uh, and there's a little bit of typing noise to begin with which i tried to edit out as much as possible but it wasn't always possible and then they mute uh, at some point and it goes away. So sorry about that. And I hope you enjoy the interview anyway. So I'm Ian Fogg. I'm VP Analysis at OpenSignal. We're a mobile analytics company that look at the mobile network experience um, that consumers have 
across many countries around the world. Um, we publish data on about 40 countries, um, but we have data pretty much everywhere. And the kind of things we compare are things like speed, video experience, latency, and we do that by country, by operator, and we go very, very deep into the analytics on it. And just to clarify, I mean, you say consumer, but uh, I guess uh, you're probably talking more business consumer, or do you have other a reasonable amount of sort of normal everyday to consumers who worry about this kind of thing, or is it mostly for commercial consumers? Well, when you think about um, a smartphone, everyone has at least one smartphone now in developed markets. If you're a business user, you might have two. Um, but every one of them, you need to have good enough signal, good enough mobile data experience to browse the web, use Facebook, take photos and share them with your friends, play games. Um, you know, it's really everyone, I think. And what we try and um, analyze is the real world experience. So how um, individuals um real experience of the mobile networks compare. Mm -hmm. I guess the important question to ask with all this is, is there, I suppose it depends on the the country and the region, but is there much consumers can actually do with this information? If 4G is bad in their area, what, yeah, how how can they do very much about it? Is there, does it depend on the location, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, there can be quite big differences um, between operators in different areas. Some operators focus more on urban areas. Um, others um, focus on price, but maybe have a less good mobile net experience because they're not charging as much. Um, in rural areas, um, it's quite common to have a mobile signal, certainly across Europe, in other parts of the world, if you're in a country with a very big, more sparse population, it could be the United States, could be Australia, could be parts of Latin America, actually getting a signal is, is a challenge in rural areas. But in Europe, even if you have a signal, it may be that was designed back in the day when all anyone cared about was making phone calls. And it may be that signal doesn't have enough throughput to do the kind of things people now do on smartphones. Mm. maybe the operators haven't really upgraded the network in that area to have you know a real broadband experience where you can do the things that you you want to do on. Mm-hmm. and so one of the the main things that you've put out recently in in february so a couple of months ago but uh, recent enough was uh, a report called the 5g opportunity I've covered 5G a few times over the the past year. It's definitely in the news right now for all sorts of reasons. Um, And the the subtitle of this is uh, how 5G will solve the congestion problem for today's 4G networks. I suppose let's let's start on the positive side of that question or that statement. How will 5G solve these problems based on your research so far? Well, the first thing to think about here is that 5G is going to be with us for 10, 15, 20 years. And when you hear 5G discussed, people will mix all different kinds of uses of 5G from autonomous driving, massive machine type communications, um, industrial automation, um, all sorts of IoT type things, as well as 
delivering broadband to homes, fixed wireless access, or just delivering better broadband to smartphones. Mm. Where we are is a very early point in the 5G era. And the way the standards are at the moment is there's really two use cases which are possible, fixed wireless broadband um, and better mobile broadband for smartphones. All of the other kind of low latency, massive machine type communications, IoT use cases, haven't yet been standardized by the industry body, the 3GPP. So the near-term focus is very much on offering better broadband to smartphone users. Um, 5G, like many of the mobile technologies, um, is a little bit more efficient at use of any given amount of spectrum. But it isn't as big a jump forward in efficiency as, say, the jump from 3G to 4G was. But 4G was much more efficient at its use of um, a given amount of spectrum. Mm. What 5G is doing is there's a whole load of new spectrum bands that are opening up, much higher frequency bands than we've used before, which have never been used for mobile technology, not been used for 2G, 3G, or 4G. And because they're higher frequency, they're typically a lot greater capacity. So you have a double win in terms of relieving pressure on current 4G networks. On the one hand, you've got this new spectrum, and new spectrum is always good because you're increasing the supply of, of what the network can do. But it's also, by its nature, high frequency, so particularly high capacity. Um, and that means you can either support more users doing the same amount of data traffic or more likely, because with smartphones, everyone already has one, um, you're going to support um, greater data traffic, greater volume of data traffic or faster speeds with the same number of users. Mm. And I suppose on the on the negative side of that statement, there's been a lot of sort of uh, sometimes maybe overly positive uh, discussion on how 5G is going to solve all our problems, but... And in theory, of course, on, on paper, in design principles, it will. But we also know in reality that um, it may not always get rolled out in quite the way we hope. Bureaucracy gets in the way, business interest gets in the way, politics gets in the way. Certainly in 5G right now, there's a lot of political discussion around uh, various aspects of the 5G rollout. So um, what what gives you especially the confidence that 5G will actually solve these problems and not end up being kind of a fragmented mess that doesn't really deliver what was promised? Well, I think a lot of the negative comments on 5G are just, we are literally at the very start. You know, we've got the very first smartphones arriving um, that have 5G chipsets, the very first 5G modems on these devices, very first network rollouts, um, in some cases using frequencies no one's ever used for mobile before. So a lot of the negative comments are really people looking at this and trying to extrapolate from essentially this, this kind of almost version 0.9, right? not even version 1, um, 5G, and, and what will happen over the next 10 or 15 years. And if you look back in the early days of 3G or 4G um, or even 2G, um, they're always teething pains. Mm, I think yeah. there was a, an acronym for um, GSN, which is the main 2G center internationally, where some, some wags said, you know, it's God send mobiles, um, mm. is what, what, it meant, what it meant. In the early days of 3G, if you remember, again, there was tremendous issues with handover between 3G and 2G, between the power performance, the battery performance of the devices. Um, in the initial European launches, um, 
most of the, the 3G devices, although they were pitched at the time as mobile broadband, weren't smartphones. Um, they were 2G, they were kind of feature phone devices. They couldn't even really take full advantage of the data connection. Um, so they've always been teething problems with each of the standards. That that's not 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 unusual. Um, what is striking about five G, just as it was with four G and three G before it, is there's a tremendous number of companies all working together um, collectively through the standards bodies to make this happen. There's a tremendous ecosystem behind it. Um, so really, it's more a case of when, not if, five mm. G arrives. Um, how quickly can the, the teething problems be sorted? How quickly can we get mature devices, good network coverage? Can we get some of the benefits of 5G being experienced by large numbers of users? Hmm. Do, you, do you feel like the enthusiasm is is bigger or as as the rollout for 4G was or the, the same? Or is it just that because when 4G came out, no one really knew or cared so much about using their devices and now they do way more. So it's just sheer numbers of interest is maybe making 5G seem so overhyped or we've just all forgotten that 4G was equally as hyped. <laughs> I think at the time 4G came out, it, it, it arrived, if you remember, in kind of 2010, 2011-ish, um, some of the later launches of 2012 in Europe. But that was a time when the world was transitioning, or certainly the development world, the Western world, was transitioning from feature phones to smartphones. There was enormous smartphone growth. Mm. The hype then was around the smartphone, but the smartphone also benefited enormously from the switch from 3G to 4G. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was there was a kind of a synergy happening where the device was transforming at the same time the network was transforming. And that was one of the differences between 4G's arrival and the arrival of 3G, where the device hadn't really caught up. Mm-hmm. Um, where we are today is we just have this voracious data consumption of smartphones. Mm. And what we highlighted in that report you mentioned back in February is we just looked at something very simple to show how much traffic there is on today's mobile networks. And we looked at the typical speed um, consumers experienced um, in the slowest hour of the day um, and compared it with the speeds they experienced in the fastest hour of the day. And typically the fast hour of the day is in the middle of the night when everyone's asleep. Um, a lot of smartphones are actually sitting on Wi-Fi networks on people's bedside tables. Yeah. So if you are on a, a cellular connection, you get an enormously good mobile network experience pretty much everywhere. If you look at the slowest hour of the day, there's an incredible difference between speeds that you'll experience and typically that, that slowest hour of the day is exactly the time when everyone wants to use their phone. That's why the network is slow, because everyone's using it at the same time. Mm. That's typically in the evening. Mm. Uh, so that difference shows how much traffic, how much, what the effect of that traffic is on the networks. Um, now, now, clearly, there's always going to be a difference between the slowest hour and, and, and the fast hour. There's always going to be a difference. But that, I think, highlights just how much pressure the networks are under. Um, and you can see some networks and some operators, there's a bigger difference between the slowest and fast hour of the day, which suggests those operators probably have even more data traffic or even more users hitting their networks um, compared to the design um, capacity they've put in or the spectrum they've got available, depending on where the bottleneck is. Um, the new spectrum, new frequencies um, will help that network experience. 
don't think it's striking about this is as consumers adopt 5G, if those 5G consumers are no longer putting their data traffic through the 4G spectrum, they're putting it on their new 5G bands, um, that actually frees up capacity on the 4G bands. People who haven't even bothered upgrading their phone yet, they've still got a 4G phone. Mm. So there is benefit um, as decent proportion of users adopt 5G. That will actually help the laggards who are still using 4G handsets. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, the 5G handsets are only starting to emerge um, and a lot of the mainstream handset vendors, especially non-Android, shall we? <laughs> I mean, it's basically just iOS. I don't know why you need to uh, to be secretive about that. Haven't really completely committed to when that will happen yet. But uh, I suppose with 5G being also intended for use by lots of other devices that are not necessarily used directly by consumers, they will be used indirectly by them. It will probably help the uh, the acceptance rate, even if consumer handsets are not quite switched yet. Yeah, I, th- I think on the handset side, I mean, what we have today is um, there are a number of handsets that have 5G um, oh. modems added to them. Um, the way the handsets currently work this year is that um, the Qualcomm platform, which is the main one that the handsets are using, has an integrated 4G modem within the chipset. And there's an optional discretionary um, 5G modem that vendors can choose to use. Mm. They have to obviously also include a whole event extra antenna design on the back of that. But what we're, what we're seeing this year is we're typically seeing on a handset company launch you know, their mainstream flagship then they offer an optional version that has the 5G capability as an option, but it's not a standard feature, even of the flagship Android devices. Mm-hmm. Um, so Huawei in Europe, which uses its own chipset, um, they launched the Mate 20 last autumn. They've, they're launching a Mate 20X, which has a 5G chipset this spring. Um, Samsung have um, four models of S10, S10e, an S10, S10 Plus, they're all 4G. Then they have a slightly larger screen device with an extra camera to the S10 5G, and that has the 5G capability included. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what we are this year. Probably it won't be till next year at the earliest we'll see even the lead Android um, handset make 5G as a matter of course. And and that seems reasonable. I mean, the, the rollout of the infrastructure is not predicted across many countries until next year especially I, I know specifically in the eu they're talking 2020 2021 so you know there's no rush for the handsets quite yet <laughs> yeah, it depends a bit on country i mean in, yeah, in the yeah, us yeah. we've got um verizon is already live with a network in limited geographies at&t will be going live i think they're both using millimeter wave which is super high frequency super fast super high capacity very limited propagation um, mm. bands. The kind of bands that if you went back three or four years ago, no one thought would be used for that would be purely a fixed wireless broadband offering. Um, in Europe, there are 5G launches happening in the Nordic. Switzerland's just gone live this May. Um, two of the mm. operators there, I think, have gone live with 5G and, and actual smartphone devices. And I think all four UK operators, for example, are planning a 5G launch this year. So it depends on the country in Europe. I think Germany is a bit later, mm. um, but it varies in Europe depending on the country. But in Europe, typically the band being used is, is around 3.5 gigahertz, which is um, much higher capacity than, than most current LT bands, but much, much better propagation than the millimeter wave bands have used in the US. So 
the, the, the vendors are aiming um, to use improvements in antenna technology to enable the operators to offer 3.5 um, um, 5G services with the same number of cell sites they currently have for 4G because they think the improvements in the antenna design and the smart antenna, things like so-called massive MIMO, will compensate the fact it's a slightly higher frequency mm. than current 4G services. When you see where that works in the real world, once these things go live and we get kind of real user feedback to see whether it actually does what the vendors claim. Let's, let's dig into the uh, report a bit more. Uh, the statistics come from a whole year, 2018, of reporting. And you have uh, 94 million, double check, I think I've got all my commas right, devices, which is a lot. Obviously, it's still a small percentage of the amount of devices in the world, but it's still a lot. How, how do you get those numbers? Where are they coming from? So Open Signal's approach is very much to represent the real-world experience. Um, how we do that is we collect data from real people's smartphones around the world using software installed on it. Um, that means we have data pretty much everywhere people have smartphones. Mm. Um, it means we, we track all the networks, all the different varieties of devices, so we can we get the real experience, not just the experience of particular test equipment or particular flagship devices. You know, your five-year-old um, mid-range Android phone that's still being used will be in that, that installed base that we use to to measure the mobile network experience. We'll have the full range of devices people are using out there. Um, so so, so it's, it's, it's opt-in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and how do you encourage in. people to opt-in, I guess, is an interesting question. Well, you know, in our own apps, we provide um, information. Um, for example, a Meteor app will say, when you run a test, it will say, for that given test, oh, okay. these apps that you, you use will work this well. Um, yeah, yeah. It also enables you to see um, if you run a, a you know a variety of different tests on where you where you where you live and, and work and so forth. You can see what the speed results are on a map. Mm. So you know if you're thinking about switching network, you might go, well, I thought the network was a bit iffy there. You can look at, at the, the map of where you've run speed tests and see. Yeah, actually, it is pretty iffy there. Or actually, no, it's actually it's actually fine there. There must be something else that's causing the problem that I'm seeing. So yeah, yeah. there's 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 value for the for our users in, in using our software. And we we've, we've got these two apps. We've got uh, an app called Open Signal, which is our original app, um, a little bit more techy. Um, and then we've got an app called Meteor, um, which I just mentioned, that's probably a little bit more mainstream in terms of explaining things and handholding users. Yeah. But it has some features which I think even tech savvy users would find valuable like the um, plotting your um, speed results on a map so you can you can see that in a, in a different visual format mm, mm, mm. I have I have used some SIR applications for like Wi-Fi in the home you know when you're trying to find where the dead spots are and things like that I suppose it's an equivalent to that uh, but on a much wider area of course <laughs> yeah and, and you can you can use our, our apps to test wi-fi as well oh, okay. Um, okay. one of the things that's, that's different about how we test the network experience is we test against real um cdns real content delivery networks real endpoints on the internet not special test servers so when you run a test you're testing not just the experience from you and the cell tower but it's from you right away out through the uh, mobile operator out to the kind of endpoints on the internet where 
you know, real applications or websites or, or key apps will host their own um, services. Mm. So it represents, again, the real world experience, not just some lab test of how quick you are into a test server in your mobile operators network, which is probably a very artificial test and won't, won't reflect the experience when you, when you browse a popular website. Mm-hmm. So let's dig a bit more into some of these numbers. Let's have a look at some of the things that uh, – People always like to look at statistics and, and compare where they live and see uh, where they where they appear on the on the kind of league tables, etc. So, firstly, let's 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 set the the boundaries here. In case people didn't know, the four G speeds are between thirty one point two and five point eight uh, megabits per second. For some reason, I thought four G was slightly faster than that. Um, I'm not sure where I got that from. Um, and obviously that number varies quite a bit. The important thing to also point out is that 5G is not necessarily faster. It's just more consistent with the with those speeds. Um, everything correct there so far? I'm getting this yeah, basically those, from your... Those are the average speeds. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, okay, okay. Because I thought it was um, up to 50-something. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so those are the average speeds. I mean, obviously you're going to get speed tests much faster than that. It's yeah. just much lower. But 31.2 is the average speed in the fastest country out of the 77 countries okay. we studied. Yep. And again, that's about a third of all, or maybe just under a third of all countries in the world, but a reasonably good a reasonably good uh, sample. Unsurprisingly, uh, it's very fast early in the morning. <laughs> I mean, early in the morning, like 3 a.m. <laughs> and it seems to, it's quite an interesting chart to look at, this chart one in your report that, just basically gets slower and slower throughout the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's across all those, those yeah. million users you mentioned a few minutes ago. We have a chart that's plotting what speed by what hour a day. And at 3 a.m., it's overall across all our users is the fastest hour of the day. And at that hour of the day across all countries, all users, um, there's an average of 22.1 megabits. And then across all of our, our users around the world, the slowest hour of the day on 4G for download speeds um, experienced by our users is at 9 p.m. when speeds are just 11.9 megabits. Um, and, and what you see is a, is a very big drop-off between 3 a.m. and about 9 a.m. Then it kind of plateaus up to about 5 p.m. Then it starts sliding again. And now, of course, the, 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 the big chart here that will interest a lot of people is the, the sort of averages per country. Uh, South Korea is right at the top, which probably won't surprise anybody. They usually come top of most of these sorts of reports. Um, well, it varies. We, we have a, a lot of competition in Singapore and, and yeah, South Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Korea. Singapore and South Korea, and, and, yeah. And when yeah. Singapore isn't top, um, uh, often the consumers and, 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 and organizations in Singapore start asking why. Yeah. And they want to get back to the top. <laughs> and then also usually in the top are some of the Nordic countries. Not not all of them. Uh, they sort of shuffle around, but they're usually fairly good. Um, I just came back from Australia, actually. And, uh, yeah, whilst the home internet sucks, 4G is surprisingly good. In fact, it's usually better than home internet, <laughs> which is a whole other conversation. Um Europe is kind of very scattered in this list. Some are quite high. For example, uh, Hungary is quite high, but I can see it has a very large range as well. So the speed you can expect is 
one of the largest on this list as well. Um, nearly yeah. a 30 meg range, which is quite a lot, actually. <laughs> so, um, I currently live in Germany. I must admit, I am expect- surprised to see Germany so high because <laughs> I find the internet speeds here terrible on uh, my mobile network. Uh, I half the time don't even have a network. Um, but I do, to be fair, I do use like a, a sub cheap O2 network. So I'm probably getting the the leftovers a lot of the time. So possibly not a well, fair we, comparison. We, we do publish reports on each country looking at yeah. how the office compares. So you need to look at the Germany report and you'll see how <laughs> how Telecom and, and O2 and Vodafone compare. Yeah, yeah, I think I will actually because I'm getting a bit sick of it. Uh, I also do live in Berlin, which is not really Germany and infrastructure here is not always as up to date as the rest of the country so, so it could be uh, a lot to do with it as well but um yeah and then um let's have a look at the bottom of your list is algeria india india maybe might surprise some people i'm not sure india is a sort of interesting when it comes to technology and i guess the the interesting thing looking at some of these at the bottom of the list um the, the average speeds are fairly low i would I would guess, um, without knowing off the top of my head the numbers, they're starting to get to kind of 3G speeds, like 2.6 to 16.4, um, but fairly slow. Was there anything out of this kind of country list that surprised you or any trends amongst them all that surprised you? Yeah, I, I think the thing that's interesting is that um, this chart, second chart on the report, is, is ranking countries by the average speed. And then you can see the length of the bars, the, the difference mm. between the slowest hour of the day and the fastest of the day. And I think what's interesting about the chart is really what the range is, um, mm. Mm. which countries have tighter ranges, which countries have, have bigger ranges. I think that's often one of the interesting things on, on this chart. Um, and some of the countries at the top of the, 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 the ranking have actually got a big range. Some of the countries at the bottom have got a big range. So, yeah. so I think yeah. it's not just the average speed. It's, it's what the range is that gets yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. Belarus, uh, I think I can see, is actually the largest, not Hungary, 7.8 to 39.1. <laughs> so. I think if you look at the chart, you know, um, Switzerland is, is very similar in average speed to New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, but there's a much greater range of speeds. So Switzerland range between 29.2 and 55.5, where... New Zealand range between 31.5 and 45.45, four, sorry. Um, so there's a, a kind of difference in range there, which I think is quite interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. It kind of suggests that in, 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 in Switzerland, you know, the networks are capable of going really, really fast. Um, it's almost the fastest hour of the day on the chart. Yeah. I think only, only South Korea has a faster, fastest hour of the day, and that's only fractionally faster at 55.7. Mm. Um, but there's a much bigger range in Switzerland than there is in someone like South Korea. Um, the networks drop yeah. down much, much more greatly. And I think that's partly because when you look at Switzerland, it's a very competitive market at the moment. Um, Sunrise is, is really stirring things up in Switzerland. And I think that's, that's putting a lot of competitive pressure on, on Swisscom and some of the other players there. And I think that's really yeah. showing through in some of the, the results here. It's also, I mean, something that I would have expected to see that this maybe had something to do with geography, like the size of the country, but not at all, actually. So Ireland has a fairly large range and is a tiny country. Um, Australia, which has a lot of challenges with geography in terms of infrastructure, is it's it's a large range, but it's not one of the largest. Um, 
Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting to see that even large countries, large sparse countries like uh, I think where's Russia? Russia, yeah, Russia is also not that large of a range despite having probably vast tracts of nothing. <laughs> and I mean, actually, that's a very good point. Does this chart include areas where there is no signal? Yeah, so we, we, we represent the real-world experience. So okay, we're collecting yeah. data everywhere people have smartphones. Um, so that means that it, we, we're collecting data places like indoors, um, in people's homes and offices that you can't test any other way. Um, it means we do collect data in rural areas, but only the rural areas people spend time in. Um, you know, if you're in, in the outback where there's no one there, we're not collecting data. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There is, there is that too. But I, mean, I think this range point, if you, you look at the next chart, we've actually a chart that's just comparing what, what the multiple is between the fastest hour and the slowest hour. I think that's, that's equally interesting in terms of how the chart looks because that, that quantifies the thing we've just been talking about, which is what's, what's the range, how big is that range. Yeah, and in those cases, the, the ordering shuffles around slightly. Um, it, it does, it does. Yeah. We end up with Czech Republic, has the, 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 the least difference, 1.2 times as fast um, between the fastest and the, the, the slowest hour of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada second at 1.3, then Greece 1.3, Singapore 1.3, South Korea 1.4. So, so it's slightly different. I think what you see there is you see a few different things happening. You see some networks in often countries where the networks are very high quality and therefore they don't slow down as much at the slowest hour of the day. So that's probably places like South Korea and Singapore. Mm. Um, and you see other countries where maybe mobile data is relatively expensive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's because it's relatively expensive. People don't use as much, they don't put as much pressure on the network. And that's probably the case more like Czech Republic or Canada mm. and mm. to a lesser extent, Norway. One of the reasons why Norway is up there higher up in that, that ranking with, little, with less difference between the busiest uh, and the quietest hour of the day is because mobile data is a little bit more expensive in Norway than, say, somewhere like Sweden or Finland. Mm-hmm. All three countries have pretty good quality networks, but data pricing is typically a little bit cheaper in somewhere like Finland than it is in Norway. Mm-hmm. So people tend to use their smartphones, use the wireless networks, um, and put more pressure on the mobile operators. I'd like to jump forward to chart five, which talks about the time of the day. Um and uh, when it's the, the type of day when speed is slowest, and of course this is probably going to reflect use um, case. Uh, and this has been one of the excuses, not sorry, one of the excuses, one of the reasons with something like the electricity grid to have something like smart grids to be able to cope with these peak demand times. Is this is this something that five G is looking to kind of uh, have an equivalent of this? ability to somehow do smarter things with the network to cope with the peaks in demand or you know how how is 5g going to help this problem and and is it or is it just going to be exactly the same that at 9 p.m even 5g will be just as slow because that's when most people are using it i think there's a few things i think just having tremendously greater capacity on the network will help um if the capacity is there um it means the operators have got more more options on how to how to how to productize it, how to how to manage that. I think there's a few other things though. Five um, G um, technologies um, won't just change the the modem in your handset, the radio, 
communication in your handset and the cell tower. 5G is going to be an end-to-end change in mobile networks. So there are massive changes happening into the core network of the operators too, um, which haven't arrived yet. Um, they're one of those bits of the 5G era that, that aren't out there yet. Everyone's working on them. They'll be arrived next year, the year after. Um, and those changes to the core network will offer the operators smarter ways of managing traffic, managing users, um, segmenting um, users and traffic to um, deliver different quality of service levels. That isn't with us today. It's something that's part of that 5G roadmap. Mm -hmm. And jumping forward to chart six, which uh, discusses some cities in particular, this one I find interesting. I'm not surprised. Sort of the the title above this says that that cities often experience the biggest swing of all, which doesn't surprise me in, in, in some respects. I mean, cities can be big, obviously, some some cities, not all cities, have big uh, uh, hotspots of of usage and activity. Um, whereas some other cities are more evenly distributed. You obviously have cities that have um, underground transport networks where signals can get very weak or non-existent. You'll also even have things like big events that can affect um, signal capacity. So it doesn't surprise me in particular. I guess what's interesting is that the cities here are not necessarily the same as the the uh, the country list so uh, you put paris at the 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 top although i think this chart is uh f- ordered by speedest range paris has got the biggest speed range followed by sydney followed by santiago yeah and that's yeah. the speed range between the fastest and the slowest hour of the day i think to understand here is obviously you have a lot of people using smartphones mm. um there's often, a, 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 depending on the country, there's often a, a, a more professional, uh, more white-collar, younger population in cities, which, again, typically tends to use their smartphones more heavily. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is that um, when we talk about cities who benefit even more from, from 5G capacity, is that similar to the, the conversation we had a minute ago that even people on 4G smartphones will benefit if a proportion of users start using 5G smartphones so the traffic goes across to 5G. Um, there's another interesting aspect here, which is what we're starting to see even before 5G launches is we see operators investing in their 4G networks um, as a foundation. Um, so, for example, increasing the capacity, the so-called backhaul, the connection from their core network into the cell tower, increasing capacity there so that when they um, launch 5G and put 5G radios on it, the, the backhaul doesn't become the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing um, often investments going into the 4G network as preparation for adding the 5G radio on. So, so some of these improvements will be will go in well ahead of 5G and will benefit 4G users even before 5G launches. Mm-hmm. So one final question on the report before we kind of wrap up. Something that interest well, something that I noticed here. We mentioned earlier in the conversation that uh, the the Baltic countries, especially, tend to have fairly good four G networks. In fact, I even remember speaking with someone from one of the telcos in Latvia, where uh, they said to me that hardly anyone has home internet because they just use four G everywhere. But and yet I don't see any of those countries on this list. Is there any reason for that? Just because you have no users, or um, there's a reason the app doesn't work there, or, or something? Or 
Yeah, I guess what would be the reason for some of the some countries not being on here that you would expect to see? Yeah, I, I don't recall those specific examples. I think what we generally do when we, we look at these reports is, as you've probably seen, some of these charts get very big and unwieldy. Yeah, we just make decisions about you know whether we have um, where we have the best sample quality, sure, yeah. whether they're interesting to the kind of people we think will read the reports and. Sometimes these smaller countries just yeah. don't make the cut. I mean, <laughs> we've already got in this report charts with, with so many countries, they fill up an A4 page. It's just, and, and the print's quite small. So sometimes you just, just got to make choices on, on some of these things. Fair enough. It's <laughs> a good answer. Okay. So is there anything else uh, that uh, you're working on that you would like people to know about? Obviously, you've got other reports out there that, that are probably interesting. I mean, we have reports in in you know, a number of countries we can look and see how their operator compares. They're freely available on the website. You can look in. Then we have these kind of bigger reports. We look mm-hmm. at the topic. Um, this was the most recent one. There's another one that might be interesting to people, which is the one we published last autumn, where we compared the Wi-Fi experience on average of smartphone users with the, the cellular, the 4G experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you made, made a few comments a few minutes ago about Australia. Um, so we found um, in... In that report, um, on average, in 63% of countries, smartphone users experienced a faster 4G download speed than the average speed they experienced on Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. um, which I think was quite striking. Um, and Australia is one of those where we we found that the the cellular experience was faster than, oh, than yeah. Wi-Fi on average. It definitely um, is. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about that is that there's a there's kind of a an assumption still in the way many services designed that Wi-Fi is always better than cellular, mm-hmm. uh, and that probably goes back you know ten or fifteen years when Wi-Fi was doing going great guns. The the Wi-Fi frequency, the unlicensed spectrum, was not heavily used um, when cellular was still back in the two G to three G transition or the early days of three G. Um, What's happened now is that cellular technology has improved dramatically, both in terms of the capacity, the speed, the latency has improved to be the response network. Um, and so what we see now is that, you know, on average, you know, all these countries, cellular is faster than, than, than the yeah. Wi-Fi experience. Um, obviously, even in countries where, on average, Wi-Fi is still faster for smartphone users, there will be situations where um, that isn't the case, increasing numbers of situations. And I think what it means there is that, that we can't assume that Wi-Fi is always better. It's still typically better in terms of um, the capacity. Yeah, and People don't pay per megabyte yeah. um, or data volume limits on, yeah. on yeah. Their, yeah. their Wi-Fi. It's not be tied to a fixed broadband connection, but it isn't always faster. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I think there's probably some some interesting angles there for people designing apps or services or websites where they need to think a little bit more nuanced, a little more carefully about how to how to behave when, when there's a Wi-Fi connection versus a cellular connection. Mm-hmm. That That's actually a very interesting point for, for me personally. You know, I do a lot of uh, audio and video recording. I do a lot of uploading and downloading. Um, my German phone plan, albeit a very cheap one, uh, it gives me three gig a month. I would get through that every day at least. Um, so that would be impossible. Uh, even when we were in Australia, you could get a prepay SIM now with 35 gigabytes, which we 
were <laughs> struggled to get through because we had an apartment with internet. Um, but even 35 gigabytes, I think I would probably max out uh, at some point during the month. Uh, and it used to be that plans had these unlimited data caps, but uh, they're not everywhere anymore. And a lot of countries used to have them and then stopped them. Um, and I think that's, yeah, you're right. There's probably something that uh, will need to change a bit. Uh, and I guess some operators have these things like they look at the services that most people use and offer them for free, but that doesn't always suit everybody. Um, for, you know, my main use is not Spotify or YouTube, it's other things uh, and very niche things. I get it, but <laughs> so, so uh, home internet still works, works kind of best uh, in, in, in some situations, I suppose. And I think the stability, I, I don't know if that's really true or not, or if I'm, kind of um, imagining that uh, I always feel like home internet is more stable, but maybe, maybe, uh, maybe that's not true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, again, it depends. It, a lot depends on, on the operators from the country. I mean, that, that's why we think it's useful to compare the real world experience between yeah. different operators. So when someone's looking at it's that price, that update, that network, you know, you can make a, make a good decision. I mean, obviously it's very easy often to compare price, but it's often harder to compare what's that network yeah. experience yeah. going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's why you need, need other analytics to help with that. Yeah. You um, don't get that in the small print usually. <laughs> it's interesting. And I think, um, I think what we'll see is we'll see over the next two or three years as um, these improvements in cellular, both improvements in 4G and, and 5G launches, we'll see a period of quite rapid change in what the network experience is that mm. people have. Mm. And it, maybe there's an even greater difference between the best operators, the best plans, and the cheapest plans. Mm. Mm. And then to, to wrap up, um, what reports is OpenSignal working on right now uh, that are coming out in the foreseeable future that, you can, that you're allowed to mention anyway? Well, we're working on, on a whole range of things. We have our regular country reports, which we publish every six months mm -hmm. in each of the countries that we track. Um, we're publishing shorter insights on an ongoing basis. We published one recently looking at um, 4G availability across Berlin, for mm -hmm. example, you yeah. might be interested in. Um, you know, we publish those all the time, um, looking at different topics, different angles. Again, they're freely available on our website. Um, you know, a whole range of things. But really, one of the big focuses here is understanding how the 4G experience is changing and what 5G will mean as it arrives. Mm. Um, I think that's probably the one of the big themes this year, um, just helping people understand how the mobile world is changing. Mm. And for people who are interested in kind of helping i suppose <laughs> you have the the two mobile application or the, the two mobile applications for two platforms that people could install i guess uh, being conscious of uh, some of uh, my audience what are the uh, the privacy implications of your application um, is it just reporting pure speed i guess location and i suppose the other question is um is it useful or not to if people are using a, a vpn as well as long as it's you know, using the right location, I guess. Um, does that hinder your your uh, analytics? 
Yeah, so we operate. We have we have our both apps available for both iPhone and Android. The Android version's got more functions yeah. because there are more functions possible on Android. If you look at the settings, you can configure a whole bunch of different things, particularly on the Android OpenSignal app. So you can choose, you know, what to opt into, um, how how often to um, contribute signal data, a um, whole lot of different settings in there. And so, you know, what I do, and I expect most of your listeners do too, is install an app and, and run this through the settings. Mm. Um, you know, we do need location permissions. That's because, you know, it's not all that useful um, to know a speed is a speed or a signals, a particular signal strength if we can't tie that back to a location. Um, <laughs> we have a very clear privacy policy, however, um, um, where you can read exactly what we do with it, um, which, you know, being a European headquarter company, is obviously GDPR compliant, um, and you know the only use we make of that analytics data is is to track mobile network experience. Um, that's what we do with it, essentially. Um, you know, if you really are totally paranoid, you can install our apps and deny location permission, um, which means you can still test your speed, but you won't contribute data back to OpenSignal. Um, but generally, it's it's a good thing to put the location in there. Yeah, for sure. Features like the the feature I mentioned with the meter app, where you can see your network experience mapped on a map that obviously we can't do unless we have location permissions. Yep, yep, yep. yep, yep. Which, which I personally find one of the most useful features of the of, of any of our apps is to see when I've run speed tests um, or when I've done run run things, you know how it's varied across the locations I've, I've been in. Yeah, that makes. Perfect sense. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of applications that ask for permissions and you don't really know why, but um, I think this is one that certainly makes sense. And I, I just had a quick look at installing them and the the only permission I could see that uh, I wasn't 100% sure what it was for was access to images, um, but everything else made perfect sense. I guess if, uh, if uh, for any further information, you have newsletters and various feeds for the reports that you put out. And there are quite a lot, yes. So we'll certainly say there's quite a lot if people are interested in, um, in uh, finding out about their country, about other countries, about specific use cases. You mentioned the, the uh, Berlin one, which was specifically around the marathon, um, which pertains to what we mentioned earlier about large events. Um, especially with a marathon, I suppose. In, in many events, people don't move around that much, but they do at a marathon. <laughs> That's kind of the point. So uh, it's a, an interesting um, use case, actually. Yeah, something else we did a lot um, towards the end of last year um, is we had a look at um, certain natural events, yeah. so hurricanes or earthquakes. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on different areas. There's some quite interesting pieces looking at um, um, the effects of um of natural events on mobile network experience. It's quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll probably, yeah. We'll probably do that again um, this summer, depending on how the hurricane season's looking. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but that's quite interesting because you can see, you know, how big a drop-off, what, what we, how the experience suddenly changes when you get a, a, a natural event like that in the location. That was my interview with Ian Fogg of OpenSignal covering the current state of mobile networks and the future. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have enjoyed the show, you can find previous episodes at christianchiller.com slash podcasts. My new show, Enthusiastic Amateur, will be going up soon. You can also find the associated newsletter and other newsletters at christianchiller.com slash newsletters. 
Uh, you can find, I did mention a, a t-shirt earlier in the show. You can find merchandise and other ways to support me at christianchiller.com slash support. Reach me at slash contact on the same website. Find my writing at slash writing or tweet at me. I'll be a little bit quiet on the Twitters. I, I hope to get a bit more active again at Chris Chinch. Please rate, review and share wherever you found the podcast. And until next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. Thank <laughs> you.